By the spring of 1916, nearly three million men have died in the fighting. During the Battle of the Somme, 25,000 are killed in one day. Honor, patriotism, family, art, religion, morality, all these notions had once answered human needs. Now nothing remained of them but skeletons. The beginnings of Dada were not the beginnings of art, but of disgust. You are listening to Share a Slice with Sean. On this episode, I'm super thrilled to have on John Law. Uh, he's on the phone from San Francisco, and he is one of the co-founders of the legendary festival, Burning Man. And uh, in addition to this, he's also, or at least was, a member of the Cacophony Society and the Suicide Club. And these are two groups that were very, very interesting back in the 80s and also the 90s as well, and perhaps the aughts in San Francisco. And uh, they did some amazing, amazing gags and pranks, uh, and all in the name of Dada. And that's what we're going to be talking about primarily today. It's an art movement that occurred in the early 20th century, and parts of Dada have just completely infused within our society, within our culture. Uh, so much so that we almost don't see the data because it's everywhere. And so we'll be talking about data, uh, Burning Man, and uh, Cacophony, and Suicide Club, and a number of other things like commercialism as well. I, I assure you the conversation is going to be very interesting. So without further ado, let's go on and uh, listen to the conversation with John Law. Originally, I found you through Hal Robbins, who's a member uh -huh. of the Church of the Subgenius. And, of course. And uh, he actually uh, got back to me because I was interested in talking about Dada with someone, and he referred me directly to you. Oh, boy. Okay. Good. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure Cal must have had something interesting to say about Dada as well, or actually uh, maybe incomprehensible <laughs> to say about Dada. Let's hope. <laughs> Yeah, actually, uh, and this is going to be kind of interesting because I'm sure most of my re listenership doesn't really know anything about it, the Church of the Subgenius. So that's a some that's a completely mm -hmm. different discussion. There, um, they're actually a group that sprung out in the early '80s, actually, and uh, there are some parallels actually between Data and and the Church of the Subgenius. But I think I'm getting kind oh, of yeah. ahead of myself here. Uh, <laughs> okay, just just for the. Uh, the listeners, um, because I, I'm pretty sure that many people have never heard of data and they just think it's some sort of baby phrase. Uh, what is data? <laughs> what is data? Well, it's a, it's purportedly the first thing that infants say when they're popped right out of their mom's belly and they're, you know, uh, shunted into this cold, cruel world. And they look at the first looming figure over them and say, Dada. I mean, you know, that's what I've heard. I mean, I couldn't uh, verify that though. Um, but, uh, when it comes to the, uh, because of the art movement, uh, you know, it, it was an anti-art movement, really the first one, and it was influenced by, uh, earlier, uh, late 19th, early 20th century art movements, uh, you know, expressionism and cubism and, and, uh, and whatnot also influenced by a fellow named Alfred Jarre, who's kind of a patron saint for several of the groups that I've been involved in, who was a French playwright and writer, story writer, novelist in the, uh, uh, in the 1890s, um, 
who was an inter- interesting character. He had a big influence on the on the birth of the Dada movement. And so, you know, this was a in some some respects a lot of smart, pissed off artists of all different stripes were kind of responding. I mean, it's hard to generalize, of course, with anything like this, especially when the people who were involved in Dada, many of them rejected the entire idea of being involved in any kind of a any kind of a group. They weren't big joiners, a lot of them. But uh, with that said, uh, a general take on Dada would be that it was in part a response to the horrors of mechanized warfare that were, uh, you know, exposed uh, during World War One. Truly horrifying stuff that had never happened in, in, in past history where, you know, walls of, you know, lines of uh, old uh, infantry and, uh, and, and the cavalry on horses were mowed down by these new modern uh, killing machines. And so this was such a shock to the sensibilities of uh, people of Europe that, you know, people were just horrified. It's like, what kind of a world are we creating here? So, and this was a response that a lot of artists had. And also the, I think their disdain for the growing, you know, uh, the growing uh, idea that art was primarily becoming a commodity and it was shifting out of the, uh, Middle Ages, where artists were typically patronized by wealthy or by by the church, and and shifting into another era where art was slowly being consumed in a certain respect by advertising and propaganda, and so I think the a lot of the artists were in, that were in this or were, or were ascribed to being in this movement um, were were in that kind of a category, responding to these things, and so they you know they made they made what they some of them referred to as anti-art. They wanted to shock bourgeois sensibilities and uh, get people to think, I think, they wanted to get people to think about the world that we live in, as art should do, a good art should do. Advertisements and commercial items are displayed as anti-art objects to show that the simplest object can be revealing. Banal newspaper ads become dramas which reveal the most secret desires. Anything goes in collage, rubbish, bolts, buttons, anything with image value that is irrational, disconcerting. Even in language. You know, I can't really show anyone this right now, but um, I guess what I could do is maybe get people thinking about if they've ever seen Monty Python, uh, the uh, some of the collage work in that, some of the cartoons um, to an extent, or maybe even, you know, if, if you've ever seen any kind of uh, just, it's it's a sort of a collage work. And you, you have this kind of collage work both visually with items all, all plastered together, mm-hmm. either uh, different objects that they're divorced from their original use and they're put into this art. Correct. Or you have, um, again, advertising, you know, like soap advertising and, and all these old ads that were just taken out and they were removed from their original purpose, which was to, you know, cajole people to buy things and built into art. You have this and you, you also have uh, the same thing in word as well. In spoken word, you'll have these um, sort of mixes and matches of different words where you just take the words and you cut them out of a newspaper, you throw them into a bag and you just recite them. Right. Or the exquisite corpse, the exquisite corpse, which is a great example. It came a little bit later of uh, one writer writing one or two lines using a couple of common characters and then folding the paper over. And so the, the next writer coming along 
we'll read the last two two sentences of the last part of the uh, of the uh, of the text, and then write two or three or four more lines, and then fold it over on and on with multiple writers writing uh, one text, only understanding you know immediate part of it right before they're 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 writing parts. So basically, the collective mind writing the play or the story or the poem. This came a little bit later with the surrealists, but but right. also a pretty cool way of mixing up literature, mixing up language. The first time I knew what the word was for this stuff was actually through this Church of the Subgenius, because you'll notice that uh, the ini- the initial pamphlets for this this church it's sort of more of a sort of a comedy. Uh, it's comedy, but it, it's all kind of comedy. That's the thing with Dada, right? Yeah, but it's dark comedy. Yeah, yeah, it's dark, dark comedy. comedy. For sure. So, so you'll have the original uh, uh, evangelical screeds of the the Church of the Subgenius, which is a direct parody of the kinds of things that were coming out of the Jack Chick tracks. The message is now part of and registered in your subconscious mind. Every time you say, see, hear, or think. What about slack? That's your key phrase. It will trigger the entire message without your being aware of it. Welcome to the Subgenius Radio Ministry, Hour of Slack, sponsored by the Church of the Subgenius. This is Reverend Ivan Stang, sacred scribe of the... First of course, yeah, they love Jack Chick. <laughs> and, and a Subgenius, uh, which started, I think it really started in 79 and then got cooking in the early 80s, um, it was uh, an expression, and an, uh, it came out of an earlier uh, fashion of uh, nail art, which was also influenced by Dada, uh, later Fluxus, uh, and uh, that had a big influence on Subgenius and mail art because they would mail their stuff out, and uh, there used to be a whole network of, uh, of uh, you know interested uh, fans, I guess you'd call them, around the country, who, who would uh, send weird stuff back and forth in the mail, and uh, Subgenius kind of grew out of that that world to some degree. And, uh, you know, with this great Dada influence, of course. Um, and Dada, in my, in my, in my estimation, Dada is by far the most important art movement of the 20th century. There's nothing even close. Uh, some stuff that came later that kind of reverberated a little bit in the wake of Dada. But, and that was because of how, how clearly it rejected you know, the entire system and the entire, uh, dogma, you know, of modern, um, um, society. Uh, the bourgeois society and exposed, you know, the hypocrisy. And, uh, and also, um, if you look at it, Dada and then also particularly the surrealism and the surrealist imagery that came later, uh, had huge influence on everything. So much of an influence on all popular culture that it's so, it's so much a part of it that people simply don't know it. They don't even, maybe even people who know a little bit about art don't have any clue about it. For instance, I'd give you a great example. That would be, uh, MTV, right? Which started in the age or whatever. And you have these surrealist images, these incredible right. uh, juxtaposition of images and wacky, completely non, uh, sequitur, uh, 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 scenarios that were created for certain artists. And, uh, this is dir- absolutely directly data, but it became mainstream. It was, it was, uh, mainstream through popular culture to the point where discordant, disjointed imagery, sound, cut ups and all that sort of thing became so common that people just assume it was just always there. <laughs> and uh, when, when in fact, that was initially, before, before Dada, there was nothing like that. You didn't have any, any mixing of genres, any mixing of uh, any like weird synesthesia of, uh, 
of, uh, of, of images and uh, with, with other d- disciplines at all. It just didn't exist, really. Not that I know of. I mean, you have the early 20th century where, uh, you know, they put a name to it and you had these, these data uh, magazines, da- you had data movies, films, you had voice recitations and recordings. And then you see reverberations of it again. If you look in the 60s, you're going to see uh, Monty Python. You're going to see the same kind of art in even like some of the psychedelic, uh, I don't know, I'm thinking of like Sesame Street, some of that, those wild sure. uh, vignettes. Oh, it was all, it was all and, diffused all through popular yeah, culture, yeah. Coke commercials, it was even popularized. Andy Warhol even like did some stuff. Mm, yeah, might, might yeah he, did ready-made. he was doing ready-made like Marcel Duchamp had done. Describe ready-made actually, if you could. Like uh, what is a ready-made? I'm no art historian, but from my readings and meanderings, uh, the first ready-made was Marcel Duchamp's uh, taking a, a urinal from a men's room and <laughs> displaying it as a piece of art, which is a great idea. I mean, it's a brilliant idea. It's a fabulous idea. It's like, here, you know, we, we contextualize it or whatever you want to call it by putting it in a museum and it is now art. Yeah. And it's just how you look at the, how you look at the, this uh, functional object, which is taken out of, totally out of context. And uh, he was extremely pissed off and disappointed later when, uh, you know, they, put value, uh, mon- they were able to put monetary value on things like this because a lot of the data, art, a lot of the objects they're making were intentionally, not, uh, you know, temporary or, you know, fragile or not meant to, not meant to last or, or you know, purportedly so offensive or just weird that you couldn't, they couldn't be monetary uh, totems. You know, they weren't anything that anybody would buy. And this is and this is turned t- totally on its head by the logic of 20th century advertising and the culture that we were, uh, you know, like evolving in or devolving into at the time. There was a time, I guess, when certain things had certain values. You know, I mean, a dishwasher had value, and uh, a car had value based on their utility, um, or maybe their durability, or something along those lines. But mm-hmm. nowadays, uh, everything has a value based on uh, it's just a uh, whatever anybody will pay for it, I guess. If you can hype it up to whatever level. I mean, I guess there was that to a certain extent for all time. Right. So Damien Hirsch can put a, a, a rotting shark in a, shark in a fish tank and sell it for whatever, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, which is pretty absurd if you ask me. Uh, the cynicism of some of these later, later art, you know, commodifiers using some of the similar literal tenets or, or, or the, uh, the imagery and symbolism, rather, that, the, that came from Dada is just, you know, it's kind of something that is interesting to look at and see what how, how truly decadent art has become uh, after this real outpouring of, uh, of uh, uh, incredibly powerful, you know, response to the horrors of the world that we're in. To these guys, you know, who just, you know, as, uh, uh, commodities brokers who become artists, you know, who figure out the, figure out the system and how to work it, you know, the Jeff Coons and the like. Some of the original data, uh, data is rather, if you will, that I read about the early 20th century, especially, I guess, in uh, Germany, for instance, because there were different flavors of data wherever you were. Uh, the German data sure. is tend to be more revolutionary, and they were more mm-hmm. politically oriented. Berlin, 1918. Collective Dada Manifesto. The Dadaists are the first not to take an aesthetic attitude towards life. And this they accomplish by hacking all the slogans of ethics, culture, and inwardness, 
which are merely cloaks for weak muscles, into their components. Blast the aesthetic ethical attitude. Blast the bloodless abstraction of expressionism. Blast the literary hollowheads and the theories of improving the world. For Dadaism and word and image. For all the Dada things that go on in the world. To be against this manifesto is to be a Dadaist. Signed by Zara, Jung, Gross, Hülsenbeck, Hausmann and others. Dadaism demands, one, the international revolutionary union of all creative and intellectual men and women on the basis of radical communism. Two, the introduction of progressive unemployment through comprehensive mechanization of every field of activity. Only by unemployment does it become possible for the individual to achieve certainty as to the truth of life and finally become accustomed to experience. Three, the immediate expropriation of property, socialization, and the communal feeding of all. Further, the erection of cities of light and gardens which will belong to society as a whole and prepare man for a state of freedom. The Dadaist Revolutionary Central Council, German group. Well, the Germans were responding to their culture, which was a much more rapidly militarizing and strident uh, political culture, I think in part. Uh, they were, they were, uh, their, their, their stridency was a response to the you know, starting to see the, of their culture as it was evolving or devolving into this horror that was coming with World War II. So, I think that may have been part of it. To a certain extent, maybe the Discordians, and then maybe later on the mm-hmm. the subgeniuses. Oh, sure. yeah. I mean, these are mm-hmm. all uh, the Discordians came out of the fifties or the early sixties, mm-hmm. if memory serves, and that that was a very yes. You know, uh, them along with the beaten, maybe the beatniks and maybe also, uh, you know, the, uh, some of the uh, some of the lowbrow types. Yeah, but all of these things that you're mentioning, they're all they're all influenced by the uh, heavily influenced by data. All of them. They're coming out of that strict kind of mold that if you want to, you know, cast a, a wide net around the 50s, there was this tightening of the of the culture. And then. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm very young. I didn't live very much through this, but it seems like things tightened up again in the 80s and you had Reagan, right? And you had the the war the world on the brink of, you know, total disaster as far as people could see. And you it was like there needed to be some sort of um valve or vent that had to be loosened. Yeah, punk, punk rock popped up, you know, right right on that time coming out of the late 70s and early 80s as a response to that. Which punk rock was also certain aspects, important aspects of the, the punk rock movements in London, New York, San Francisco, uh, were influenced by very much so by, by Dada, by some of the succeeding art movements. Um, the entire the entire London scene. I mean, Malcolm McLaren was huge, was a huge Dadaist, uh, and loved the absurdity of uh, you know the, the concepts and you know like kind of striking out at the at the uh, bourgeois uh, you know classes and you know. <laughs> Potentially violent fashion, um, which was effective because you know I, I mean I remember that period. I wasn't a, uh, I was well, I wasn't a punk per se at all, but I had a lot of friends who who became part of that scene in San Francisco, and we went to a lot of the clubs and and uh, I was in a group called the Suicide Club at the time, which was sort of a different thing, a much smaller group and much more uh, insular, in, interested in uh, urban exploration and pranking, street pranking, that sort of thing. But but there was a lot of crossover with the punk scene. And uh, when it first started out in San Francisco, it was an art movie. It was an art scene. It wasn't like a any kind of a hipster. You know, you here's your like uh, you know your your scene uniform or how you're supposed to look or there's no look. You know, everybody's everybody was they had their own peculiar uh, sartorial take on <laughs> on their wardrobes. 
and uh, and what they and how they lived. And so it was a very interesting scene here for several years. And it sort of like solidified a little bit more into a, a sort of unified punk scene where you could kind of tell, oh, they're punks by looking at them later. But the thing about that that was interesting, the thing about that that scene that 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 upswell in the punk era was uh, that it took several years for the general public to figure out what was going on. And in the interim period, uh, they were frightened by it. Punk was really scary. <laughs> it's really scary to people. We're looking back on it and knowing the print, some of the principles now and knowing the history, it seems kind of silly. It's like your parents being freaked out by uh, Ozzy Osbourne and Black Sabbath, but they, they totally were right. at the time. Very upsetting to the general public. Whereas now we live in a society where that something like that is simply not possible. I think we're post-data. We've pi- finally become post-data. Like uh, really, honestly, when uh, Trump was elected, that, I think that was the death knell uh, for data completely. Data was so suffused into our culture that there's so much a part of it that is no longer really going to change anything or have a, have, a, have, a, have a profound effect on anything. And we're entering into another age right now, maybe the age of the robots, who, the, who knows what it is. But Trump also, uh, <laughs> capitalism in his pointed little head, he's literally the embodiment of Ubu Roy, who was the main character created by Alfred Jari in the 1890s, of this horrifying, like, id monster creature who becomes, <laughs> the, you know, the, the leader of Poland. And he just has this, this complete giant man baby, you know, like, uh, walking id, and most, one of the most important, uh, characters in theater, uh, and, and, uh, art and, li- and literary history, too. All three. Hugely important figure that influenced a lot of stuff to come, uh, primarily uh, Dada, but many, many, many other movements. I mean, the, the theater scene, I mean, that was a turning point. That play, Ubu Roy, was a turning point uh, in the history of theater, where absurdist, I mean, all of the uh, succeeding, uh, you know, existentialist and absurdist playwrights were influenced by Jari uh, and by his act with that play. Um, and, and so it's a hugely important thing. And so here you have Donald Trump, who if you even look at him, he even looks like Ubu Roy. You know, just big blustery, like small fingers, big blustery dude, like just spewing out, you know, red face and spewing out. And so when he was elected, I think that was actually the very, and I would, I will say this, that was the end of Dada completely. It's done. It served its purpose well for a hundred years and more, uh, and, uh, really helped to point out, uh, a lot of the absurdity of our era, of our era. But now we're past that. We're, we're in a literally absurd cartoon world. Uh, and when we did a performance piece a while ago for City Lights Bookstore, uh, they did a hundred year anniversary of Dada and it was a, a 12 night affair. They had 12 different or actually probably 20 different events going on over the course of 12 days. Uh, and we did one day, one, one day of events for them, a one day long event for them as part of their ongoing series. And it was, uh, hosted and designed by, uh, by Peter Maravellis at City Lights Books. And they do wonderful events there. And, they, and this was the only, this was the largest celebration of the 100-year anniversary of Dada anywhere in the world, including the, the one they did in Zurich at the, same, at the same time. And so Peter put together all these different crazy groups in San Francisco and the Bay Area that did these cool things. And, you know, we kidnapped 80 people in the audience. We put them in uh, rider rental trucks, two rider rental trucks stuffed into them with people having sex in the middle of them, and they were blindfolded and took them to these different venues. Yeah. Seriously. Took them to these <laughs> different, different venues where uh, we had one venue that had people uh, – uh, performers, friends who were playing different Dada characters, Tristan Zara, Hugo Ball, and, and whatnot, Andre Breton, some of the later surrealists, and then, and, and having conversations with the people in this kind of a cocktail soiree. 
and then they were moved into this other place where they went down into a rabbit hole. It's kind of hard to describe, but we, we, we tried to create as many like shocking and, uh, and, uh, bizarre incidents as we could for people. So they came, they were blindfolded for a great part of the event. And at one point they were, went down to this uh, rabbit hole, slid down a giant underground slide in darkness and came out into a room where Dick Cheney, we have a friend who's an actor, uh, Ed Holmes, who <laughs> does the uh, annual St. Stupid's Day Parade. And he's also an actor. And he used to play Dick Cheney a lot or Dick Cheney, like evil white guy, business guy and politician types. Yeah. And so he was playing Dick Cheney, having a screaming argument with uh, Alfred Jari in this basement of this in- incredible space that people were in as they came through. And then at the end of the sh- end of the night, we had uh, Alfred Jari come down a cable in this giant warehouse uh, and with a real shotgun, shoot this giant Ubu Roy uh, mannequin that we had made that had a, and this was, a, this was three days after the, presidential election that we did this event okay and we had made this giant giant ubu roy mannequin and on one side it had like a a three foot wide uh donald trump head and on the other side it had a three foot wide hillary uh clinton head they're both filled with explosives and when he shot the thing with the shotgun with the with the blanks in it their heads blew up (laughs) So, (laughs) so that was our contribution to the 100 year uh anniversary of dada and that was kind of a a lot of several groups in the bay area that helped helped me put on that one performance uh, you know, uh, uh, participatory event rather. It wasn't so much a performance as a participatory, participatory event. And that was, uh, there were different groups, but it was kind of like, uh, under the auspices or the aegis of the old cacophony society, which doesn't really exist anymore, but which, uh, was a group that we were involved in for many years, which I always considered to be one of the very last iterations of Dada, you know, towards the end of the 20th century. Uh, cacophony started in 86 came out of an earlier group called the Suicide Club, which was a urban uh, exploration, urban adventures, pranks, and just weird challenger fears kind of group. And then uh, it was a pretty extreme group, kind of secret society. And then it ended after five years. And then we started Cacophony in 86. And uh, it had a pretty good resonance. There are some things that have come out of it that you've heard of. Uh, Burning Man came out of the Cacophony Society. Yeah. It was birthed out of the Cacophony Society. Fight Club is based on the Cacophony Society in, in, in part. Uh, SantaCon, the annual, you know, like stupid drunken frat boy thing happens <laughs> every year now. We started it back in 94, uh, with different intentions. You know, it was a much smaller event and we were trying to make fun of, uh, you know, Christmas commercialism, but it sort of took off as a meme and now people do it all over the world. But, uh, those, those are, those are actions I consider to be, uh, definitely, uh, the children of Dada. And, uh, and sort of the last, in a lot of ways, the last gasp of that, I think of that 100 year span of its influence. I mean, I may be getting a little, uh, I don't know, uh, maybe I'm making some assumptions here, but, and I don't know what's going on in other places in the world in regards to the finality of <laughs> the century of Dada, but that's what we were doing. So. I don't know. I mean, the first time I heard about it was actually on, uh, Hal Robbins, uh, uh, radio show there. So, uh, okay. Well, Hal did a, yeah, he did a piece. He did a piece for my event that we did for city lights. Yeah, yes, he did. He did a wonderful, uh, uh, speaking piece for it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Hal's also at, uh, burning man pretty regularly from what I hear. I've actually, I've never actually been to burning man, you know, so I, I have no well, idea. It's a paying gig for, for Hal. So that's why he still goes. Um, burning man is a giant party, uh, that, uh, where a corporation that owns Burning Man has partnered with the, uh, Silicon Valley corporations to keep their, uh, their worker, uh, you know, their worker force happy. 
uh, after working, uh, 50, you know, 50 weeks out of the year, 100, 150 hours a week or whatever they make those poor kids work. They get to go out for a week long, uh, party, paint themselves blue, get naked, paint themselves blue, yeah. do some acid and fuck somebody they just met. That's what Burning Man is now. <laughs> get really dusty. <laughs> yeah. Okay. When it started out, it was an anarchist, freeform anarchist collaborative effort to, uh, set up in the most, one of the most remote and completely unencumbered places in the continent and do pretty much whatever we wanted to. <laughs> and, uh, and that's how that, that's how that thing got started and was sort of, uh, like that for many years to go. Now it's a, it's a big event. There's still some great things that happen at it. Uh, and still some people who get a lot out of it, but it's much more of a commercialized and, uh, that, that's uh what they'll I say it's not, they'll say it's not, but yeah. it is. You, you see a lot of the Instagrams and they're, they're just like, I mean, it looks like a great time and there's a lot of very beautiful people. Oh yeah, people great who go party. <laughs> Let me tell yeah. you. But um, oh, yeah. I, I remember watching a, a documentary about Burning Man and um, about it being just setting fire to a, a much smaller man, I guess, on the beach. And I, I, San Francisco, was it, that it first, when did, where did that yes, first start? Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right, beach. San Francisco Baker Beach. And uh, there was only what, like maybe, how many were like less than 50 of you guys there that first year? Well, the first time that the, the figure was burned on Baker Beach, there were probably about 20 people. What you saw was a recrea uh, recreation of that first time. It was a total recreation. Uh, they won't say that it was, but it was a recreation of the, uh, of the first time. Um, that event, Burning Man, started, also started in 1986. It was influenced by a woman uh, who was doing summer solstice parties on Baker Beach, right by the Golden Gate Bridge, beautiful beach right by the Golden Gate Bridge and, uh, and the uh, outflow of the, uh, the Golden Gate Bay, you know, San Francisco Bay out in the, in the ocean. Wonderful. One of the most uh, scenic spots in the world, really. And so this woman, uh, Mary, I'm not going to mention her last name because she's a little uneasy about being affiliated. She doesn't want a bunch of hippies coming over and, trying to talk to her, but, uh, she, she was doing these uh, events, uh, on Baker beach where she'd invite her friends to come there and she'd bring some art and they would burn it. And this was in the late seventies, early eighties. Uh, and she was a member of the suicide club back in the day. Uh, and, uh, in the late seventies, which is a group that I, I was in when I was a teenager. So Mary, uh, started doing these things in the mid eighties. And then, uh, these two guys, Jerry James and Larry Harvey knew her and were coming to her event. And right around the same time, they, uh, uh, the rumor is they saw uh, the movie Wicker Man and that in conjunction with Mary's uh, burning things on the beach thing. That was where they got the, uh, the light bulb moment. But, but who, who knows? I mean, there's a lot of stories about that. And so the Cacophony Society, we joined up with them a little bit later and then uh, uh, made it into, a, into an actual event. It was just kind of a bonfire on the beach at that point in time. We made it into an, into an actual event because we were doing larger scale events and uh, took it out to the Black Rock Desert in 1990. Uh, my friend Kevin Evans, uh, had the idea. He and I had been planning to do a cacophony event out in the Black Rock Desert, which is a place that we both knew from different events that we've been out there for, different small, small time, you know, in, in my case, it was just going out with friends to go, uh, exploring. And, uh, Kevin had been out there for a, a wind sailing, uh, uh, thing that a small group did out there, Planet X grouped it out there in the late 80s. Mm -hmm. and so when we found out that we both knew the location, like, hey, let's do an event out. We have to do a cacophony event out there. How great would that be? So we were planning it. And at the same time, we were uh, doing Burning Man on Baker Beach, which happened once a year, happened at the solstice 
you know, June 20th or whatever, 22nd. And uh, we got shut down on Baker Beach that year, 1990, June of 1990. And so Kevin had the great idea. He says, uh, well, we're doing our thing on Labor Day out in the uh, desert. Why don't we uh, bring along the man? You know, why don't we talk to Jerry and Larry and bring along the man and, and do that? And so that's how Burning Man moved out to the Black Rock Desert. That's how we got out there. Uh, and there were 70 people the first year that we went out. Uh, and we called the event Bad Day at Black Rock, the San Francisco Cacophony Society Zone Trip Number 4. <laughs> was actually what it was called, and that was the first one uh, in the desert. Seventy people, and uh, it doubled in size every year, and it became and it became larger and larger. Uh, it was a very data event. I mean, extremely data event. There were no rules uh, and no expectations. People could bring out whatever they wanted and do whatever they wanted, and so this this open palette allowed for a lot of creative thought, um, a lot. And uh, but by the fifth year, fourth, fifth year in the desert. It was getting so big that it clearly had to become a more controlled event or it had to end one or the other. Uh, and so in order to make it a more controlled event, it actually ended up becoming a business, which they never told me. I mean, after I left, uh, you know, nobody really told anybody it was a business. They kind of like let people think it was a nonprofit for many years, which it wasn't. It was a for-profit event and, and still is, you know, to this day, although they have a couple of nonprofit groups that are affiliated with it. And so uh, it just became this giant, massive uh, spectacular spectacle, yeah, uh, and uh, and a, and a, and a commodity in, in in a way, a good one. It's a good product. You know, you pay your four hundred, five hundred bucks for a ticket, another two grand to get your, you know, to be able to go out there, and uh, you know, basically, it's a party for you know for rich tech kids for the most part. Exactly. My my wife is black, and she said that she's never like uh, she doesn't know any uh, black. Folk who go no, out there. Few. I mean, very like, it's few. all just very a, few. It's kind of like camping, you know. It's like uh, you don't see a lot of. You just see a bunch of kind of upper class white people who camp, generally speaking. Yeah. Yeah. And they're they're running around naked on drugs, and there's some great art there, and there's some great stuff that happens. Yeah. And with all that said, there's a there's an underclass there that uh, that actually runs that that city. It's a city of seventy thousand people, and there's an underclass which is called the DPW, the Department of Public Works. And there are other groups, other uh, functional groups that are part. And they, these are uh, paid, and in most cases, volunteer, but in some cases, paid employees of the Burning Man organization. But they have a whole subculture, uh, which is quite interesting. That's the most interesting thing about the event now, I think, is the DPW group, because these are like mostly younger people. Uh, some of them are getting older now, uh, who uh, are kind of uh, roused about, so a lot of whom work on different events through the course of the year, you know, they work on Coachella or another festival, they kind of follow the festivals and work on them. So sort of an itinerant working class. And they're an underclass that services, you basically an underclass of poor punk rockers and hippies who service the rich punk rock, rock, rockers and hippies right. and techies. So, and then just, so it's basically, it's still a great event in so many ways, but it's just like back home in San Francisco or in New York where the rich people are served by the poor people. I mean, you have... Uh, and, and, and it's a, in a way, it's still a good thing because you have artists like art car artists and other artists who are hired by these millionaire kids and millionaires to build their art car, to build their sound stage, to build their whatever. So they're getting paid to do work, and they like it. And they hold they have a really kind of a uh, very gritty Mad Max culture, and, they, yeah. and they're very proud of it. They're proud of what they do, and there are many cool people involved in it. Tough people, uh, in my experience, or not my experience, and what I've heard because I left the event many years ago. Uh, people in, uh, you know, in the, uh, under, underclasses at Burning Man who, 
you know, complain a little bit too much or make a little bit too, too much noise don't end up being rehired. Hmm. But they still have a pretty solid, solid culture. And, uh, like I say, they're quite proud of what they do. But, and they're all, all that's influenced by data, you know, out, out from out the door. I mean, this whole, uh, sense of, uh, stepping outside of reality and, and responding in a non-commercial fashion to this barrage of, uh, you know, this horrible commercial world that we live in. But even so, I mean, Burning Man became a giant fucking money-making event. There's no way around it. Uh, the urinal uh, became a, a hugely expensive art commodity, you know, hugely valuable piece of art. So, uh, you, you know, our 20th century age is the age of the advertising, yeah. uh, the, you know, the advertising behemoth, initially uh, set in motion by Eddie Bernays, whom I, I don't know if you know who that is or not, but... Uh, he was a guy who invented modern advertising and public relations. He was Sigmund Freud's nephew. Eddie Bernays is the guy who, uh, it was Betty Crocker cake mix. I think they they were they were ready to to roll out a new technology. This was cake in a box, basically. Mm-hmm. Yep. All you had to do was add water, and you got your cake. And it it was an enormous flop. Uh, most of the most of the customers at the time were women, of course. And uh, Eddie Bernays said, uh, "Yeah, you just make it so that they have to tell them to add an egg to the cake." Yep, right. And, and apparently, this was all deeply Freudian. The the women uh, had to believe that they were adding some of themselves to this cake. Mm-hmm. They weren't worthy if they just added water. They weren't doing their. <laughs> they weren't, you know, doing their right. jobs. So they had to ovulate on it. They basically had to ovulate on it. <laughs> I love it. Betty Crocker cake mixes are different. They call for your eggs added by you at home. It's the only national cake mix brand that lets you add the eggs. There's a reason why there are no dried egg whites, no dried egg yolks in Betty Crocker cake mixes. When you add the eggs, you're sure to get finer cakes most consistently. Nine out of ten homemakers in recent tests it's fascinating what 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 he was able to do. Yeah, uh, my estimation, he's like I said, one of the one of the handful of most important influential people of the 20th century, hands down. He's up there with Hitler. He's, I mean, you know, Joseph Goebbels used his theories for yeah. uh, devising his propaganda campaigns. I mean, the, the dude had a. When you look at culture, popular culture, and American popular culture, and how it's suffused out into the rest of the world in China, Europe, you know, to, to some degree, Russia, uh, you know, uh, that was, uh, all from our, you know, uh, our culture of, uh, of, uh, commercialism and advertising. Yeah. Very huge. That, that and Hollywood, those two big in Madison Avenue and Hollywood, the two big influences and Eddie Bernays had an influence on both of them. Um, virtually like, you know, the, I mean, I'd say the godfather of Madison Avenue for sure. Um, and uh, his campaigns are, you know, legendary. I mean, the, you know, the, uh, um, what was a cigarette, uh, uh, Lucky Strikes, you know, Arbor. campaign. You know, yes. Yeah, no, it was Lucky Strikes, a suffragette campaign where he, he conflated smoking with women's suffrage. Okay? Oh, yes. And they had, they I heard put about to, that. Yeah. Yeah. They put together these, uh, these, uh, rallies where they get women smoking on the Capitol steps and things like that when, in an era when women were absolutely not socially allowed to smoke in public mm-hmm. and so it was, it was the women said hey I'm, I'm i'm gaining my freedom by smoking by killing myself i mean what a brilliant campaign you know uh, but it worked we made lucky strike the, the biggest selling brand in the country 
It used to be, lady, you had no rights. No right to vote. No right to property. No right to the wage you earned. That was back when you were laced in, hemmed in, and left with not a whole lot to do. That was back when you had to sneak up to the attic if you wanted a cigarette. Smoke in front of a man? Heaven forbid. You come a long way, baby, to get where you've got to today. Introducing new Virginia Slims, the slim cigarette for women only, tailored for the feminine hand. There was actually a, a character, I believe it was in Brave New World, and uh, he was basically programmed uh, from an early age. There was a whole class of these businessmen that were programmed to, to while they were at work, while they were in the city, they, they desperately wanted to drive out into the country, right? Desperately. Oh, uh, yeah. And then they'd drive out into the country, and then they'd stay out there for a while, and they'd feel really agitated. And then they'd have to drive back into the city. I don't know if I'm remembering mm -hmm. this correctly, but the idea was that they were designed that way to buy cars and burn petrol. Oh, that, yeah. That was Interesting. it. They were just, in a, that, right. that was their, their task, their duty, was to just <laughs> be a consumer of these products. That, that's it. Mm. It's interesting how that works, that the idea that... that uh, um, our jobs now in the West, it, uh, really, our job is to, to consume. consume. That's what yeah, our job. Up. Period. When we, yep. when we, when we're born, we're we're our our parents, you know, consume to to keep us going, and then as soon as the, they can possibly get it into our hands, they'll hand us a piece of plastic, a, a you know, a Visa or a Mastercard, and yep. it's their job to get you in as much debt as they possibly can. Right, mm -hmm. and then you're you're trapped. Uh, there's no way out, right? Yeah. Anyway, I'm I'm kind of bumming out. Uh, the thing is, that, yeah, don't bum out. <laughs> um, do you have any projects that you're working on right now for now in the future? Um, yeah, I'm uh, I'm heavily involved in uh, not heavily, but like more than casually involved in the uh, urban exploration scene. Oh yeah, which is uh, something that they don't advertise much. I mean, it's not something I'm going to give any specifics about. Mm -hmm. I'm not doing, I don't do big public events very much anymore. I'll do small events occasionally. And I help out with some kids in the Bay Area that do underground events that I'll, I'll maybe show up and show up on the event and, you know, maybe uh, hang out. And also, uh, I travel around the world uh, whenever I can and around the States to do uh, urban exploration with different groups around the country and in Europe. And um, I, uh, so I do a lot, a lot of that. I've gotten back into that. Um, I've gotten back into making object, art objects, which I haven't done in many, many years. I'm doing some neon pieces, neon art, uh, sculpture, mm. uh, thinking about that more and more. Getting paid a little bit to lecture. I've been to China and you're, I've been to Europe a bunch of times in, uh, uh, in China. We did a book with two uh, wonderful co-authors a while ago called Tales of the San Francisco Cacophony Society, which is sold out now. I mean, after four years of, I think Amazon's out of them finally, but uh, you might, might be able to find them somewhere. But it's a pretty good book. It tells the history of uh, of uh, the Cacophony Society and its influence on some things that came later. Co-authors, uh, Carrie Galbraith and uh, and Kevin Evans, who did the wonderful artwork for the book. Uh, and I'm working on some other writing projects and, and, and lecturing, doing presentations and lecturing about uh, San Francisco weirdo history and how it's influenced the world for better or worse. <laughs> That's great. 
Uh, listen, John, uh, thanks so, so much for being on the show and sharing a bit about uh, Dada and also Suicide uh, Club <laughs> and, uh, and mm-hmm. uh, Burning Man and uh, also some of the more depressing stuff in the world. Uh, I, mean, uh, yeah. I think that the only way, the, the best way to maybe react to this is uh, be a little creative and maybe uh, be a little subversive at the same time. Man, I should be a lot subversive, but that's just me. <laughs> yeah. So. I believe but, it. Well, thanks for having me on the show, Sean. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, and, Sean. Uh, yeah, let's talk again in the future. I'd love to talk about the Suicide Club. Got some great stories there. So thanks so, so much for listening to this episode. I'd also like to thank John Law for being on the program, too, and uh, let you all know that uh, I plan on having another episode with John. Uh, We're going to do the taping in December, so hopefully that'll be out in January. We're going to be talking more about uh, John's time in the Cacophony Society and also in the Suicide Club as well, so it should be very, very interesting. I'd like to thank the Fantastic Plastics as well for the theme song. And also, I'd like to credit all of the samples that were used for this program. You'll find links within the show notes over at shareslicepodcast.com. When you're there, you can also subscribe to the podcast and you look at previous episodes and previous notes there. In addition, uh, the Church of the Subgenius, they were nice enough to let me play clips from their programs And uh, I'm going to end off this episode, actually, with a trailer from the new movie which they plan on making all about the Church of the Subgenius, which, as John says, is a sort of outgrowth from Data. So it's a well-worthwhile project, in my opinion. And you can go to bit.ly slash slack on to see all about that, the Kickstarter campaign. It's it's B-I-T dot L-Y slash slack on. And uh, so the trailer, um, it's about a movie that can only be made if you guys donate to this project. So go on over to that Kickstarter. It's B-I-T dot L-Y slash slack on. Have you ever wondered about your neighbors? Maybe wondered about the weird thumps and bumps or chants emanating from their apartment? Well, they may be followers of Bob. That's the fastest-growing cult here in the Southwest. I grew up as a a little white boy in America in the 1950s in a middle-class home. I was in the perfect position of being desperate enough to do low-budget promotion for a weird cult. If you have never heard of the Church of the Subgenius, do not look to us for enlightenment. It all began with the Book of the Subgenius and the Church's deity. Bob Dobbs. It was part pop culture, part science, part religion. We tied together every occult, superstitious, fringe belief you could think of. It was so much fun. Wouldn't you like revenge on these mediocritans, these pink boys, these box-dwelling Barbies and Kens, these normals who have made normality the norm? You either got the joke or you didn't. And you got the joke instantly.
My name is J.R. Bob Dobbs, and I'm working exclusively with a team of filmmakers on a documentary about the Church of the Subgenius. It's time for my story to be told. This film team wants to expose it, and all the Subgenius are ready to talk. I just loved the brotherhood of guys talking about this made-up religion. It was a great release, you know, to have all this nutty stuff in your head and then find like-minded people to, you know, express it with. We were aware that we were sort of influencing other people. What they got was, you know, people were joining the church. We were getting better known outside of Dallas. Mark Mothersbaugh came by. David Byrne, he had become a subgenius minister. It's called the Church of the Subgenius. The church was always meant to never be mass marketable. Because the world's gonna end? That's what I'm asking you. The audience kind of took over. I feel like I'm part of something now. Yeah, I feel like I'm finally being represented by something. That moment of realizing this thing goes farther than I ever imagined. All of a sudden, it got very real. Bob Dobbs, the icon of the Church of Subgenius. You have seen this guy's face stickered or stenciled somewhere, haven't you? This Subgenius filmmaking team can only make this documentary if you send piles of cash and share this exceptional project on your social media outlets, flying saucer radars, and obviously, smoke signals. This is not a drill. We need you. With only 30 days in the campaign to raise the dough, it's all or nothing. Support us now. You've got to back to get slapped. Wow! Got the bag, go.